What is going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to do a live Q&A. If you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, maybe hop over onto YouTube if you want the full effect with some, you know, super necessary hand gestures involved. Otherwise, wherever you're listening, thank you for listening. And for everybody who asked a question, thank you for asking. We're going to do this definitely uh, definitely live today. I have not seen these questions. I'm going to try and pick the ones that I think would be the most helpful. We'll do this for about 25, 30 minutes or so. Uh, let's jump into it. So first question from Katie May Main. She asks, can you back calculate maintenance? Uh, if you're losing one pound a week at 1600, would 2100 reasonably be your maintenance? And so what Katie's saying is that if what we know is that maybe about 3,500 calorie deficit per week would yield one pound of fat loss, and we could break that down to about an estimate of a 500 calorie deficit per day. So if you're losing a pound a week, you could reasonably estimate that you're in about a 500 calorie deficit. And if you're losing at 1600, a pound a week, you can reasonably estimate that your maintenance, or can you reasonably estimate that your maintenance is 2100? Can you kind of reverse engineer that? The answer is absolutely yes. What I would say is just caution against thinking that the math is always gonna work out perfectly like that, but it's absolutely one data point that you should take into account when you're estimating, you know, going from your deficit calories to your maintenance calories. Like how fast have I been losing right? If you are losing a quarter pound a week, chances are you're not in a 750 calorie deficit. Chances are you don't need to be adding 750 calories um, back when you're going to maintenance. And so if you're losing an average of pound a week at 1600 calories, you can reasonably estimate that you are in something like a 500 calorie deficit. The reason I say something like that is because a pound a week of fat loss would be about a 500 calorie deficit, but you might be losing water. I mean, you probably are losing some form of water and glycogen and stomach content. Um, and so just taper that estimation a little bit. This is like, again, this is about accumulating different pieces of data and then deciding. And this is an important piece of data. It's like, how fast am I losing at this many calories? Can I reverse engineer my expected deficit? You absolutely can, but I wouldn't assume that it's gonna work out super, super perfectly, but it would be one data point that I would definitely use. I'm also having a coffee. We're gonna keep this a little loose here. All righty, next question is from DL Wiz. He or she asks, uh, setting strength and aesthetic goals, this isn't really a question, but how do you help clients set goals? Um, I would say that clients usually come with a general idea of what they're after, at least a general direction of what they're after. I'm looking to get stronger. I'm looking to build muscle. I'm looking to improve certain biomarkers. I'm looking to um, improve a relationship with food, find a sustainable place for me to be able to have, you know, health and fitness pursuits while mentally in a good place. Like whatever that is, like usually clients will come with a certain goal. Um, I'm not saying it's not my job to help clients set goals, um, but I'm certainly not there to tell you what you should want. I find a lot of times what I think a coach in general should do is help you kind of work through what you think you want by helping you assess certain trade-offs. So clients might come with um, a bit more of a jumbled view of what they want. They, they're like, I want a little of this, a little of that. I want a little of this. I'm not really sure. Um, and what I think is important for a coach to do is, is to help you assess what the trade-offs would be in the pursuit of certain goals. And so you're like, hey, I wanna have a six pack. It's like my, not my job to tell you whether or not you should want that. It is definitely my job to help you understand what getting a six pack would cost in terms of trade-offs, what it would cost in terms of lifestyle and to help you have the tools and tactics and expectations ready to be able to achieve that if you want it. 
And so I'm not saying I don't help my clients set goals, but I certainly help them kind of work through what might feel very chaotic in their brain of like a lot, it might be like scatterbrain a little bit and kind of hone in on what they think, what they say they want or what they think they want and then assess what those things cost. A lot of times clients come to me with certain goals that they say they want. You know, I want a six pack is a really good one. It's like, sometimes it's my job to help you get to, again, it's not my job to get you to a point where you think a six pack isn't worth it, but it's my job to, help you know what a six pack, getting a six pack is gonna cost in terms of lifestyle adjustments. And a lot of people end up having their goals change as they learn what certain things cost. Um, so I hope that helps answer the question at all. I find that what I like to do and what I find to be very helpful is to help people understand what their goals cost so that they can find a certain level of goal that really matches up with the lifestyle trade-offs they're willing to make. You know, you might have a goal of, want, you know, having a six-pack, but you might not actually want to make the lifestyle trade-offs and drink less and, you know, restrict a ton and lose a, lose a significant amount of body fat, deal with, you know, discomfort. Like, none of those things might be things that you actually want, but you want a six-pack. So I think it's more my job to kind of deal with some of that cognitive dissonance that sometimes happens. Um, and, you know, if I have a client who's feeling like they're just sputtering along and they don't feel like they have a, an attached like like a vision of where they're going, certainly I think taking a step back and, and assessing what potential goals might be. Um, but it's a delicate balance, you know, being goal-oriented sounds like it's always a good thing. I think people are oh, goal-oriented. It's like, you know, it's like this good thing that we want all our kids to be goal-oriented. And, and, you know, we've been praised our whole life for being goal-oriented. But sometimes, you know, it's nice to not have a goal. It's nice to have health and fitness kind of slot into your life in a way that feels super sustainable and you're not like living and dying by your strength numbers and living and dying by the size of your bicep increasing. And so it's sometimes a balance of how goal-oriented you want to be. So that was a big word vomit on that. And so hopefully that was remotely helpful. Next question is from A Canals 7 Is it okay to want to live in maintenance and never cut or bulk if we're okay with the downsides when it comes to gains? Yeah, for this, these questions of like, is it okay? Always crack me up. It's like, you know, it's like Lord Voldemort gonna come and fucking Avada Kedavra you if you don't wanna, of course not, of course it's okay. Of course you can not cut in bulk if you want to. Like, that's totally fine. You know, I find that, so what we know is that if you pursue body recomposition, what that means is eating at maintenance with high protein, lifting for hypertrophy, and you can make muscle gain and some simultaneous fat loss, um, you can do that. So you can change your body composition by eating at maintenance. You don't need to drastically change your body weight. You don't need to gain a lot in a bulk. You don't need to be super uncomfortable in a cut. And you can see physique change. We know that. What we also know is that it is dramatically slower, right? Because you don't have the benefit of a surplus for muscle gain. You don't have the benefit of a deficit for fat loss. You're trying to do both simultaneously. And so you're doing neither most efficiently. Um, but what you get in return is kind of what she's asking. It's like, well, I don't, I probably is my guess is she doesn't feel like gaining and being uncomfortable. She doesn't feel like cutting and being uncomfortable. So can she just recomp forever? The answer is hundred percent yes. And I'm glad that you add the context of if I'm okay with the downsides. The downsides are as follows. One, your absolute amount of muscle gain will be diminished. Um, if you're interested in significant, significant fat loss, you won't be able to do that. And so you won't ever get as muscular as you would if you were bulking and cutting. And if you have significant fat loss gains, you can't do that at maintenance. But if you're relatively around a body weight that you're kind of happy with, and you just want to know that you're making some semblance of progress over time, and you really are okay with making drastically slower progress, if that means you don't have to bulk and cut, then I think this is a totally fine place to be. Personally, right now, in my state of where I am in life, 
this is where I'm at. I understand the downsides of living perpetually at maintenance. I'm not gonna make a ton of muscle gain. I'm not gonna lose a bunch of fat. I'm at a place where I feel pretty comfortable. And so I'm okay with those downsides. And so it's about just, I'm glad you added context because my number one thing that I'd like to, it kind of piggybacks on the last question about setting goals and, and all of this stuff is just understanding what the pros and cons are. If you're someone who's like, yeah, I hear you. I'm gonna make much slower progress and maybe I actually eventually get to a point where I make no progress because I'm so muscular. Like I'm at a point right now where at, me personally at maintenance, I'm not making a ton of progress. I'm not expecting to see change outside of like year to year unless I gain and cut, let's say. Um, and I've been doing this for 15 years, so it might not be you. If you've been lifting for a year or two, you, you probably still have a lot of room to gain. What I will say before we move to the next question is most people have more recompability than they give themselves credit for, right? If you've never consistently hit your calories at maintenance, if you've never consistently um, hit your protein level at a high enough amount, if you've never consistently lifted for hypertrophy and slept well and done all of those things to optimize gains outside of being in a surplus, chances are you have a lot of gains you can still make at maintenance. And most people aren't trying to be pro bodybuilders. And I think if most people lifted at maintenance, had enough protein and their lifting was hypertrophy based for three years, they'd be amazed at the progress they could make. Now from year three to year 10, that you know the progress you make is gonna be vastly diminished. But a lot of people actually don't need to, you know, maybe you, most people wanna be fit. They wanna have, they wanna look like they lift. And chances are, if you're in a position where you don't lift or maybe you have a little bit of extra body fat, you can probably achieve amazing, amazing, amazing results just eating at maintenance, high protein and hypertrophy training. Cool, cool, what do we got next? All right, um, ATL Abby says, the difference between calorie deficit versus body recomposition, just a quick one here, but calorie deficit is obviously eating less calories than you burn and you'll lose body fat. Body recomposition uh, in the way that most people are using it is eating at maintenance like we just talked about so that you burn a little bit of body fat, you build a little bit of muscle simultaneously and you change the composition of your body without changing the weight of your body. Again, this happens extremely slow uh, compared to if you were gaining or cutting. And it happens progressively slower the more muscle you gain or the more advanced you become or the longer you do it. Um, people who are relatively new to lifting or on steroids or build rebuilding muscle that they once had can all do body recomposition fairly well, but again, it diminishes over time. Next question, Michelle Rocco. Uh, is there a significant benefit to syncing your macros with a woman's cycle? Is it worth the effort? Um, so there might be somebody out there in the world who knows a better answer to this question than me, but personally, I don't know what you would do with your macros to sync up. There might be some discussion of carbohydrate intake, but I really don't think it's that meaningful um, in terms of changing specific macros based on the period that you are in your cycle. However, what I would say is if you have period cycle symptoms that are intense, um, you have high amount of cravings, you're very tired, you have um, cramps, you, you have low motivation to train, um, just general fatigue. I do think acknowledging that and um, tailoring some form of your nutrition and your training towards that, 100%. I think I have several clients who we exclusively deload during one week of their cycle where they're quite fatigued and we know that training will suffer or we take diet breaks, or we increase calories during periods of, you know, where we can optimize certain things in terms of training based on what's happening hormonally during that period of the cycle. And so I think that if you have intense symptoms, 
There are things you can do from a calorie perspective and from a training perspective. I don't know necessarily that like big swings in macros would be vastly necessary. Oh, I need to go in my luteal phase. I need to have more carbohydrates. And I'm not so sure that's going to be something that's super meaningful. So if somebody out there wants to comment or, you know, tell me that there is some research out there that shows that this could be beneficial. Um, I'm open to it. That'd be cool. Yeah. Montana AT53 asks, uh, I want to progress deadlift because it's fun, but my main goal is hypertrophy. How often would you program deadlift? So you obviously are, are understanding of the fact that like doing conventional deadlifts on the floor compared to the alternatives like RDLs and other hinges isn't optimal for hypertrophy. But what's cool is just because it's not optimal for hypertrophy doesn't mean it, it can't be in a hypertrophy program or that it can't be in a program that will give you hypertrophy or that doing deadlifts doesn't give you any hypertrophy. Those are all not true. Um, so you can absolutely put deadlifts in a hypertrophy program. It is a, you're acknowledging that it is slightly suboptimal, but you just said it's fun and I want to make progress. And that's awesome. It's just totally fucking awesome. Um, I would, so how often was your, how often would you program deadlift? I mean, I would program it fairly often if it's, it's a, if it's an, a lift that you want to significantly get stronger in over time. I don't mean often like uh, many times per week. I mean, often like within the context of your overall programming over like your macro cycle over weeks and months and years, you would program it often. Um, I would do deadlifts once a week, m most likely, um, almost always once a week, specifically if you have generally hypertrophy goals elsewhere. But I would probably put deadlifts early in the week, early in the session, and just recognize that it's a very systemically fatiguing exercise and maybe pair that with maybe less systemically fatiguing exercises on that day. And I would certainly do it on a leg day. Yes, the deadlift does work your back. Technically it does, but it is more technically, if we're being technical, it's more technically a leg exercise. So I would put it on a lower body day and I would recognize that it's very systemically fatiguing. And so I wouldn't do deadlift, you know, heavy deadlift, heavy back squat, you know, um, heavy reverse lunge or whatever. I wouldn't put a ton of heavy, high systemic work on the same day. So maybe just take that into account with your programming. Next question, uh, AA Cruel, Cruel, maybe Cruel, there you go. Will I increase fat after a cut when I go into maintenance? So basically, am I going to gain fat reversing from my deficit calories up to maintenance? <laughs> Two answers. One, technically, if you go from a deficit to maintenance, Tell me at what point you're in a surplus. You were in a deficit, now you're at maintenance. When were you in a surplus? You can only gain fat in a surplus. End of story. So in a hypothetical world where you perfectly go from your deficit to your maintenance calories and you never are in a surplus, you'll never gain fat, period, end of story. Now, does that mean that nobody gains fat in a reverse diet. Of course not. Of course it happens. You know, people overshoot all the time. And sometimes it's totally fine. Sometimes some amount of fat gain, a little bit of fat gain actually makes you feel freaking awesome. It obviously coincides with eating more calories, which also makes you feel awesome. Um, so I don't think gaining a little bit of fat in a reverse diet is a bad thing at all. I mean, it, it does mean that you went into a small surplus at some point. Um, but I think on the net net, you're going to still net a significant amount of the fat that you lost, like keeping it off and you probably feel amazing. And obviously the goal of the reverse diet is not to go into a big surplus and blow over your calories and gain fat back that you just tried to lose. I understand that. Um, but I also think, you know, a pound or two on the way back to maintenance and feeling really great will help. Um, that said, the question of will I gain any weight as I go from my reverse to maintenance is very possible. 
um, tissue that you might have lost is coming back, glycogen that you lost from, by definition, eating lower calorie, uh, lower carbohydrate, or almost always eating lower carbohydrate because you were lower calorie. Um, and even if you weren't, there's still some glycogen loss. And so when you lose glycogen, you lose water for every one gram of glycogen that you store, you store about like 2.7, let's say three grams of water. And so as you're increasing carbohydrates, you're gonna increase the glycogen that your muscles, particularly your muscles are storing. Also with that comes water. And so as you're eating more, what we tend to see is glycogen stores fill up. You have a little bit more food in you at any given time and people gain a little bit of weight. Now they they don't always, there are gonna be people who, I've seen it all. I've seen people gain a little bit of weight because they just gain some glycogen back. Totally healthy. They look better. You look fuller. It's good for your strength. It's It's a good thing on all fronts. I've seen people lose weight because at the end of their deficit, their cortisol was so jacked up from being in such a high stress state that eating more actually brought their cortisol down and they flushed out a little bit of water. And yeah, they also gained some glycogen stores, but it netted out to a loss actually. I've also seen people who gain no weight. I'd say the most likely option is a couple of pounds of regain from glycogen stores. If you're finding that you're, this rate of gain is happening on a trend week to week, you're gaining and gaining and gaining, and if you objectively look at how many calories you're eating and you are act, like, if you're like, I was at 1400, I think my maintenance is 2000 and I'm at 1600 and I'm gaining weight. That's a slightly different story of like, probably maybe you're not eating that much. Um, so I would do an audit of like, are you actually doing what you're supposed to be doing or have you potentially overshot where you were supposed to go? Um, so I do have a, a podcast on reverse dieting. I'll link it in the description if that's something you want to listen to. It does go about this process of kind of where should I stop? How should I go about the reverse diet so that I don't gain uh, a ton of excess body fat? All right, Stacy, Stacy K, what is wrong with the around the world exercise with the dumbbell? So uh, those of you guys not watching, I'm going to demonstrate it, you know, obviously on video here, but um, you basically take a dumbbell and you're like going around your head with it and you're basically like giving yourself a haircut on all sides with the dumbbell. And I think somebody asked me in my Q&A like why I didn't like, or if I liked this exercise and I said it was trash. Um, so she's kind of following up as to why. Um, so a, a good exercise at the very least is going to take primarily one muscle from its lengthened position to its shortened position through its, you know, some high percentage of the range of motion. If we look at a really good quad exercise, it's gonna be an exercise that takes the quad through the quad's full range of motion, through an eccentric and a concentric. And if we look at the around the world, you're kind of just, like if I ask you, what does the around the world exercise work? You'd be like, oh, uh, sh shoulders. Your shoulders have at least three heads. You at least have a front delt, a side delt, and a rear delt. And even each of those has its own divisions. And so when we look at something like the around the world exercise, we kind of get to a point of like, what am I doing here? I'm just kind of, isometrically holding this dumbbell over my head and swinging it around until my delts get tired. Now your delts will get tired, but that doesn't make it a good exercise for hypertrophy. We wanna load specific tissue through a range of motion with a concentric and an eccentric. Ideally, you know, lining up, lining up the movement of the exercise with the, with the fiber angle from the, where the origin and the insertion kind of can most optimally pull from one to the other. And when we look at something like the around the world, it's just a, kind of random fuckery of like, well, if I do this enough, my delts are gonna get tired, but that's not necessarily the pursuit. Your legs can get tired if you just go run a mile, but that doesn't mean it's good for hypertrophy. It just means you got tired, right? Where are we at? We're at 20 minutes here. 10 more minutes here. Let's get through more. 
KCALs and dumbbells. Is there any difference between a long and short barbell besides the weight? Um, basically, no. Um, basically, no. Yeah, the longer, the further the weight is away from you, that can change the levers a little bit. That can change some of how much it actually feels like it weighs. Like if you use a hex bar, it's a little bit more narrow. The weight's a little bit closer to you. It's going to be a little bit more comfortable. You'll be a little bit stronger. Um, but not really. You're very welcome to use a short barbell. You're going to be able to mimic basically all the movements. It is what it is. Totally fine. Susan Wildy says, what to look for in a nutrition coach? Um, a couple things come to mind. I think, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you could assess somebody's credibility, like how knowledgeable they are and how much they actually know? Can they, Do they actually have the knowledge to solve your problems, to help you get where you want to go? And that's, okay, that's one knowledge. Two would be experience. Do they have experience solving your problem? Do they have experience, you know, tackling the issue or the goals that you want to tackle? You know, if you want a powerlifting, I know you asked for nutrition, but let's just talk about coaching in general. Um, if you want to powerlift, don't hire me. You know, I have a little bit of knowledge in powerlifting. I can probably write a half decent program for powerlifting, but I would go find a professional who coached a lot of, competitive powerlifters, and they're going to be a lot better at that than me. And so if you have a, a question of like, hey, I want to hire a nutrition coach who could really help me, um, you know, optimize my lipid, my lipid panel and my glucose and a lot of these biomarkers, some of my inflammatory markers, these are things I really want to see improve. Well, then I'd make sure that that person has some knowledge of those things and some experience trying to tackle them. That's for sure. The question is, how do you know if that person has that knowledge? And that's a little bit tricky. Um, I think social media does a good job at this. I think people who are watching this podcast right now, people who are on my social media, at least get a chance to get to know me a little bit. And so the people who hire me, uh, you know, have some idea of who I am when we start, which is really nice. Um, because I think the third thing I would say is find somebody that you vibe with. Find somebody that speaks in a way that resonates with you. You know, I, I have some, some sometimes say the word fuck a lot, you know? And if that is just a note that doesn't work for you and you're just like, nope, that's not the kind of person I wanna work with, okay, I understand that. Like, you need to be able to vibe with that person. It needs to have a communication style that works for you. And I guess the, on that note, the fourth thing would be find a coach that offers a level of connection that you need. And so I do daily check-ins in the beginning, weekly Zooms in the beginning, and then eventually weekly check-ins and monthly Zooms. And... I find that Zooming, for me, is a no-brainer. If I didn't Zoom with my clients, I would never want to do this. This is terrible. Like, I just, I don't know how people coach without seeing their clients. And I don't know how clients hire coaches without ever seeing them and talking to them face-to-face. -to, -face. to me, personally, that doesn't make any sense. For me, for me. It's not something I would want to do. It's not something I would want to hire. And so, if that's important to you, find somebody who offers that level of communication. If it's not important to you, then, of course, you have other options. Um, I didn't want that to come across as I'm shitting on coaches or whoever who do that. I'm just saying for me personally, if I was a client, I, that would be important to me. Um, that's it. Cool. Alrighty, next question. It says I have four minute battery life. That's not good. Maybe this will cut out. If it cuts out, I'm sorry. Thanks for coming and we'll, you know, see you next time. Um, alrighty. Uh, Stephanie McDonald, 11. Are push-ups and pull-ups good for hypertrophy? The answer is absolutely yes. Push-ups and pull-ups are wonderful for hypertrophy. Wonderful. Are they the best exercises compared to their alternatives? Probably not. 
Um, that doesn't mean that they're not awesome for hypertrophy. Like the deadlift, maybe they're they're probably even better than the deadlift um, in comparative terms. But let's take the pull-up. What does the pull-up work? Pull-up works your entire back, a little bit of lats, depending on your grip. It's going to be lats, upper back, biceps, little forearm, um, you know, mid-trap, lat, rhomboid, teres, all of that stuff, depending on your grip, etc. And so it's good for that. It is. Um, but if we take a counterpart of like a lat pulldown, right? A lat pulldown where you're sitting in the machine, you got the pad on the legs, you're grabbing the bar, you're pulling down to your chest. I'll take the lat pulldown 10 out of 10 times. If we had to choose, by the way, you don't, you can do both. But if you had to choose, I take the lat pulldown because of the added stability. If you've done chin-ups, it takes a, it's, there's a bit of a greater skill component to a chin-up. There's also greater core component. My group right now, they're doing eccentric chin-ups in the group right now. And a lot of people are like, my abs are really sore because the chin-up, because you're holding your body free in space, requires some amount of core engagement. Now, you might look at that as a good thing, totally, but you asked for hypertrophy. So when we're looking at like upper back hypertrophy, I don't want my core to be on fire. I don't want my core to be the limiting factor. And so if we look head-to-head from like a free standing pull-up to a lat pull-down, I might take the lat pull-down. That doesn't mean that the pull-up isn't awesome. We do pull-ups in my group. I do pull-ups in my training. I think pull-ups are great, um, but we recognize that there are downsides. Same thing with the push-up. If we're looking for a pressing movement, I would take a dumbbell press over a push-up because you can bring your arms closer together. You can kind of adduct to the arm, which takes the pecs through a more full range of motion uh, 10 out of 10 times. I would take a well-designed neutral grip machine that has a converging press, uh, a converging arm path probably over a push-up. Because with a push-up, your hands are stationed, you know, they're, they're static on the ground and you can't bring the hands closer together as you press yourself up. The push-up also has a core component to it. If you've never done push-ups, there is some element of keeping your core tight or engaged. Um, again, you might hear that and be like, oh, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good thing if that, that matters, but we're talking about pec, delt, tricep hypertrophy here. I don't want my core to be a limiting factor. And so the push-up can be great. We're actually, it's funny, we're doing push-ups in my next mesocycle with the group because I do think it's a fun exercise and it's good for hypertrophy. But we recognize downsides and it. the question is not, is this a good exercise? The question is, when I compare it to my alternatives, what does it, where does it rank? That's a better way to really think about this stuff. Some exercises straight up garbage, totally agree. Um, the around the world thing we just talked about, that's trash. But most of the time, if you're comparing decent exercises that have like some semblance of rationale behind them, it's not, is this good or bad? It's how does this rank in terms of the, you know, compared to the alternatives with the goals that I have. All right, so it's telling me I got one minute of battery life left. So thank you guys coming. Thank you guys coming. What the hell is that? Thank you guys for coming. And I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.